Good morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14 as we uh, address the topic. Uh, the title is called Living Considerately in Consideration of Others. Um, as Paul addresses the issue of what he calls disputable matters, the gray zones of life. Um, would you stand with me as we begin by reading this chapter together? Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Paul begins with this instruction, exhortation. He says, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn him who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than other, another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, and you are no, then you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. But it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So that whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is a man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not, is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we enter into this passage, 
uh, that you would give us your wisdom and your discernment, Lord, the ability to make uh, important distinctions over subtle separations, Lord. We just pray for your help and your grace in this as we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Many of life's issues cannot be explained in simple black and white terms as much as the politicians tell us they can. For example, when I look at myself, here I am, I am a sinner, but I am also saved. I'm predestined, and yet I have free will. I'm a good person, but sometimes I do bad things. I'm called to live in the world and be part of it, and yet at the same time I'm called not to be part of the world. I'm instructed not to judge, or I'm basically I'm told that I need to make judgments, but I'm not supposed to be judgmental. And so that when we begin to look at the application of the outliving of the Christian life, it can become a bit confusing. And one of the reasons why Paul prayed that as you and I mature in our faith, he said to the Philippians, he desired that we would learn to discern what is best. Discern what is best. The very statement implies that when you look at a situation, it's not always absolutely clear what's good or bad or true or false or beneficial or not beneficial, that we have to use discernment, the entering of the mind and the heart into figuring out what is the best choice. And life is filled with those kinds of challenges. It's one of the reasons why, in a way, the spiritual life is a situational life. Because as Paul reminded the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, he said, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. That everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. So that in a sense, when I was set free from the power of sin and death, God gave me free will to use and to make decisions regarding things, but also expecting me to seek his face and saying, God, what is the most beneficial decision I can make? What is the most constructive way I can respond in this situation? So even though we believe, on the one hand, in absolute truth, particularly as that truth is presented to us within the Word of God, there are, if I can use this term without getting attacked, there are often gray areas, that kind of space between the interpretation of the Scripture and the application of the Scripture. And this space or this gap Paul refers to as disputable matters. And by disputable, he simply means things that are debatable, that we have some hesitation, it's not clear-cut, and we might even find ourselves engaging in argumentation over. Now, one of the guides that I found very helpful was created by a friend, Jerry Bashirs, who is a, a professor at Western Seminary, and he came up with a, a four-level grid of, of, of really evaluating things because he said, you know, first of all, there are some things as a Christian that I should be willing to die for. In other words, when James the Elder, who we'll refer to later on, uh, uh, the, was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem and he was taken to the pinnacle of the temple and commanded to deny Christ or die, he chose death. He preferred to be cast from the temple, the highest point of the temple and die than to deny his faith. He was willing to die for his faith. And as Christians, when it comes to the denial of our Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ, 
Historically, we found that believers have many times chosen to give up their life. And there are some things that are just essential. So that when I talk about what I believe, and I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, and he's God, and he's Savior, and there's no way to heaven except through him, these are really kind of the foundational truths. There might be about 14 of these that form the foundation of what it means to be a true believer in Jesus Christ. They're non-negotiables. If you don't accept those things, then you're not accepting the gospel message. You're not accepting Jesus for whom God declared him to be. But below that, there's also things that can create divisions, things we divide for. In other words, uh, you may hold to a doctrinal position that I find untenable. I can give an example talking about say, predestination. There are some people that believe that the way that God is glorified is that he preordained and randomly chose somebody, some people to go to heaven and go to hell, that there is no real free moral agency. It only appears that way, but you're predestined to one destiny before you ever uh, were born into this world. I, again, reject that. I would, have, I would find myself dividing with you and, and even, in fact, I have people that I believe are believers within liturgical traditions who have practices where, that I could never feel comfortable in fellowship with them, that they believe that the baptism comes through the church or, or salvation comes through the church, not just simply through Christ, that we're saved both by works and by grace, or that we have to go through certain rituals and things in order to earn our salvation. Well, at that point, I'd simply say that's, that's not consistent with what I see in the Word of God, and it's probably better that we just divide. You have your church, I'll have mine. But then you take it to a deeper level where you find that you agree on these essential things of the faith, the foundational things you agree on, on many of the basic practices of the church you agree on, but then you find that there are some areas in which you have debate. A great illustration with this was a, uh, a friend of mine when the Iron Curtain went down and he was with a group of pastors from America going to do an outreach in Bulgaria. And Bulgaria was still, you know, just coming out of the communist control and era. And they met in Germany with a group of German pastors. And as they got on the train uh, and they were loading their luggage on, the German pastors were not only putting their suitcases on the train, they were loading cases of beer. And, um, you know, they kind of looking at this and going, okay, this is odd. Well, when they get to their destination, and in those days it was hard to even find food. In fact, when we were going to Russia, we used to carry a lot of our food with us because it was just simply hard to locate food. And when they sat down for dinner, the Americans are sitting on one side, the Germans are sitting on the other side, and the Germans are sitting there opening up their beer and eating it with their dinner. And one of the American pastors, a young fellow, stood up and said, you German guys are stumbling me with your beer. And one of the German pastors looked at him and said, and you American pastors stumble us by how easily you divorce your wives. Whoa. <laughs> Suddenly there was silence in the room, right? But you understand that here we have an issue that probably would be healthy to debate, to have a discussion and have a debate. And there are all sorts of these kinds of things that come up where the Bible doesn't strictly says absolutely no, but there needs to be a debate. There needs to be a dis discussion. And it brings us to the final level when you can come together after having that discussion and you can decide where you fall on the issue. 
And oftentimes, those become the context in which we feel our most comfortable state of fellowship. Because I know churches where if somebody has a smoking habit, they're not welcome. I even know churches where if you grow a beard, you're not welcome. There are interesting things, and there are other churches, if you don't have a beard, you're not welcome. So, I mean, we find that we begin to divide on all these kind of things. It reminds me of the church that, this is a true story, that actually got into a great split over whether or not they could actually have instruments in their worship service, because some of them had become convinced that it was wrong to have instrumentation, that all singing should be just vocal. And so finally, they were so torn by it, they divided into two churches, and the group that left, the non-instrumental group, built a new church building, but they made the doorway so narrow that you would never be able to get a piano or organ through it. And that was their solution to the problem. And as silly as that may sound to us, in some ways, it's better to do that than to strive and hate each other. But here's the problem. Those who did play instruments and those who didn't spent a lot of time telling everybody else what was wrong with the other guys. And this is really where Paul's weighing in. He's saying, don't go there. Don't be that guy. You see, there are all sorts of points in which we can divide. There's things that I say we can take minor issues and make them major things by which we define ourselves. In fact, I, I think that we can be guilty of what I call sanctifying our preferences. One of the greatest areas, I think, is music. I know the kind of music God likes and doesn't like. <laughs> Everybody says that. The truth of the matter is, as Guitar Magazine said so many years ago, I know the music I like because I like the music I know, what's familiar to me. So as I've shared before, my, my dear mother, who just simply could never get her arms around this church completely because we didn't have an organ. And I thought, well, so one day I, somebody donated an organ, I rolled it out, and, and we had an organ with the band, and she wasn't real excited about the way they played that organ. <laughs> it was a little bit more like Pigpen and Grateful Dead, but it was, nonetheless, we had our organ, and I realized, well, it's not the organ, it's the style of music that people become, for. and we do things like this. We decide that um, yeah, you know, if the pastor isn't wearing a suit like I do every Sunday, then he's not, you know, he, he's not, you know, somebody came up to me and looked at my jeans and says, are you doing okay? Um, <laughs> no, I need a raise. <laughs> but we draw these distinctions, which are really personal preferences many times, but somehow we decide that I prefer them because that's what God prefers, when in fact, God may not really care. I have been in foreign countries and worship services where the music was unbearable to my ears. It was just, especially in some Asian countries, man, I just, I have to admit, I sit there and just go, don't get it. And yet these people are worshiping their brains out beyond anything that we ever do. So it's easy for us to lose sight of what's really central and what's not central. And that's part of what Paul's argumentation is here. And in fact, in his context, within the first century Roman church, this really split over three major issues. The first one we covered in detail from chapters 2 to 4, which is the issue of circumcision. The second one that he talks about here is the issue of whether you can eat meat or vegetables only. And this really was an issue not so much about vegetarianism 
as it was about eating meat that potentially had been killed in sacrifice in a temple and you might be eating idolatrous food. In fact, Paul goes into this in more detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But there were some people who basically, apparently were saying, rather than risk eating meat that might have been offered in sacrifice to a, a, a demon in the temple of Bacchanalia or Dionysus or Jupiter, I will just become a vegetarian and never eat meat again. There were others who were saying, in, who were saying that uh, basically if you don't go to church on the right day, then it doesn't count. And these were probably Jewish, what we call Sabbatarians. So why were these contentions present in the church in Rome? Well, mainly because Christianity's roots are in Judaism. I mean, the early church was composed of Jews who converted to Jesus and continued to see themselves as primarily Jews. The founding leaders of the early church came to Christ while within the context of Judaism and didn't set out to separate or become a schism within Judaism. They saw themselves as the fulfillment of the promise of God to the Jewish people and themselves part of that covenant. And if you read the book of Acts, you see what a difficult transition that was for the early church to move from Judaism into the acceptance of the Gentiles as part and parcel of the church. So that what we find is initially what the church taught, the Jewish church, if you will, taught, that in order for someone to be saved, not only did they have to be baptized, but they had to also be circumcised. Faith and thereby signaling that they were a faithful observant of the Mosaic law. There was also a particularly emphasis on Jewish dietary laws, what we call kosher today, that you eat certain foods because if you eat the wrong food, it makes you unclean. And when the Jews used the word unclean, they were not talking about any kind of bacteria or, or biological problems or trichinosis or any kind of thing like that. Unclean to them was spiritually unclean, which meant you could not go into the temple and worship God and offer sacrifice. So that you could touch a pig and you can't go into the temple until you've gone through an extensive ritual cleansing. And that included not only things that you ate, but things that you did, like going to funerals and things of that nature. And so they basically said, if you're going to be a believer, you're going to actually become a Jew part and parcel. But Jesus threw some real big wrenches into the gears of this theology while he was still alive uh, in his earthly ministry. Because when it came to the issue of food, he said, for example, in Matthew 15, 11, he says, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth? Now, we may read that and say, of course, but you have to understand in the context of who he's speaking to, they're blowing their brains. They're losing their minds. What do you mean it doesn't matter what goes into mouth? Because that's all the Pharisees thought about is what was going into their mouth. Because they literally believed, touch or eat or taste the wrong things and you're disqualified. And therefore, they went to extreme measures never to do anything that would possibly defile them. In fact, they wouldn't even leave a Gentile, a non-Jew, in the house unattended because he might accidentally touch something and then you put food in that something and you become unclean without even realizing it until you go to the temple and God judges you. Lightning strikes. 
I mean, that's written down. I mean, that's rabbinical teaching of the time. It's not just something that I came up with, despite what you believe. And when it came to the Sabbath, Jesus did things that they considered to be violations of the Sabbath. They, he was doing what they called work. He, he picked wheat and ate it on the Sabbath day. He performed miracles. He, he healed the sick. He healed the infirmed. And the Pharisees said to him, why are you doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath? To which he responds, he says, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So he doesn't say, I'm not working. He says, I am working, but I'm doing my father's work. And he says, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So when the Gentile converts began to outnumber the Jewish believers. And we don't have a clear statement in the book of Acts how Gentiles began to become part of the church or what the exact process was. We just know that after the Jews fled from Jerusalem because of persecution and went to major cities like Antioch and Syria, somewhere in there Gentiles started coming in and becoming part of the churches. And then the Gentile converts began to outpace Jewish converts so that Judaism became more intense in its persecution of the faith and the Gentiles were, were still running way below anybody's radar and the church and the Gentile communities began to proliferate to the point where most of those who were professing to be Christians now were actually Gentiles. And they were Gentiles who we, from all appearances, were living like Gentiles lived. And so it became a major political issue in the early church. The first time we have what's called a church council in 50 AD, they come to Jerusalem to meet with the elders of the church in Jerusalem to decide the Gentile question. Because the argument had broken out. There was on one hand men who were saying, in order for these people to be saved, they've got to be circumcised and they've got to keep the Mosaic law. Otherwise, they're not completely saved. And then you have men like Paul on the other side who is introducing salvation by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. That all that stuff doesn't matter. And they're literally a huge debate and even eventually a division that takes place in the church over this issue. This is the first major schism in Christianity. And it's so over an important issue. What is the basis of salvation and eternal life? Is it receiving Jesus and keeping the law and becoming Jewish? Or is it simply by faith in Christ alone? Well, Peter offered really what became the winning argument when he stood up in his council and he says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them, that is the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So here was Peter who was credited with actually leading the first Gentile, a Roman centurion, to Christ. And as he's preaching to them, the Holy Spirit falls upon him and the rest of his cohort, and they begin to prophesy and speak in tongues and show all the evidence of the Spirit of God in their life. And Peter says, if they've got the Holy Spirit, I guess it's okay to go ahead and baptize them also. 
And when he gets back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11, he's called up in front of the elders and saying, what were you doing? And you know what the complaint was, it says in Acts? They said, we heard, not that you were preaching to Gentiles, not that you baptized Gentiles, we heard that you were sitting down and having dinner with them. You were eating with Gentiles. That's how important it was to them. You're eating with the Gentiles. And Peter begins to tell the story and says, well, i got to put this one on God. I went there because God gave me a vision telling me to go. And when I said, I'm not going, he said, don't call what I made clean unclean. You go. So he says, I went. And I presented the gospel. And I, I'm sure it was probably the most unenthusiastic evangelistic message you ever heard. <laughs> I'm sure he read his script. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls down. And these people are powerfully transformed, and Peter kind of draws the logical conclusion from point A to point B and says, man, if they've got the Holy Spirit, then they've kind of got the whole package. We might as well baptize them. But you understand, not really knowing what do we do with this now? Where do we send these people? I mean, this is something we hadn't planned for. It isn't in the manual. There's no instructional, except Jesus kept on saying something strange. He said, when this gospel is preached in the whole world... And in their mind, they're thinking when the whole world converts to Judaism and suddenly it's the world converting, but not to Judaism, they're converting to Christ. It's hard for us to understand how powerful this situation was, how difficult it was, what they, how they struggled over it. That's why at the end, James, the brother of Jesus and eventual martyr for the faith, elder of the church in Jerusalem, he offered the final decision. He said in chapter 15, verse 28, it seemed good not to burden you, that is the Gentiles, with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and from the blood and from the blood animals and from sexual immorality. Now keep in mind, all three of these things are directly associated to the practice of worshiping in pagan temples. This is what they did. They, they ate the meat that was sacrificed. They had these big festivals. They'd sacrifice the animal. Everybody would get meat on the table. They'd drink the blood. They'd engage oftentimes, especially with Bacchanalia and Dionysus, they'd engage in all sorts of sexual immorality. They're kind of wild orgies. And he said basically what he's saying is avoid pagan worship and everything associated with it. But here's the problem. How far do you take that? Did that include also, because afterwards, if there was meat left over from the sacrifice, why waste it? We take it down to the marketplace and we sell it. And now when you go to the marketplace to buy meat, and Paul tells the Corinthians, when you go to buy some meat, don't ask them where it came from. <laughs> Just buy it and eat it. If you go to a friend's house and he offers dinner to you and he says, this steak was just on the altar of Jupiter this morning. He said, don't eat it. Because he says, you know it's nothing. You know that Jupiter or any of these gods are nothing, but we have to be careful about the conscience of other people who don't know that difference. So the question becomes, how far will they take it? And it appears here in Rome that some people were taking it to the extreme. Just to be safe, don't eat anything. And there's a theology or a philosophy within the church that if it don't have permission to do it, then you don't do it. Well, when you think about how restrictive that can be, because there's a lot of things that the Bible doesn't tell us what to do. The Bible doesn't tell you to take a bath every day. So if it doesn't tell you to take a bath every day, don't do it. Okay? The Bible never says anything about 
changing your clothes or what kind of clothing you can wear. I mean, it's very limited in what it describes. And if you take that approach in life, if the Bible doesn't tell you you can do it, don't do it. You can only do what the Bible tells you what to do. Well, it doesn't even tell me that I need to go to the bathroom occasionally. But this may surprise you, I occasionally do. Twice last month. So, you know, these are, these are things that, that uh, it, it seems so spiritual, but when you get into the practicality of it, it's very unreasonable. It's not how we live our life. And when Paul says, as many as are led of the Spirit are the sons of God, there's an implication that there's a kind of a fluidity and a situational dynamic. That we don't teach in the church that life is just a matter of situational ethics. In other words, some people said, whatever situation you're in, you have to decide what's the best choice. No, God is clear on some things. He's, he's declared very clearly. When people say, well, I just wonder what God's will, should I divorce my wife or not? I can be very clear with you. The Bible says, no. <laughs> That's not God's best for you. I mean, he's pretty clear about that. But when you get to other issues, like where should we go on vacation? Really, we need to learn that that's not just a matter of doing whatever I want to do. It also involves prayer. God, what should we do? What is your will? But it's that discerning what is best that is the evidence of a heart that is in hot, hot pursuit of God. Not just seeking to do what I want, but I'm discerning, God, what is the best way for me to spend the moments of my life? Because they are fleeting. And so what Paul does is give us, I think, really a, a guide for navigating ourselves through this, this gray zone. And I think he begins with some things that I, I would call the absolutes, the things that are always true, the things we should always be mindful of. And first and foremost, he, he tells us we are not independent, we are interdependent. How does he put it? In verse 7 of chapter 14, he says, for none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. We, we're interconnected. In fact, to the Corinthians, Paul said the same thing, except in a little more detail. He says, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Therefore, there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other, because if one part suffers, every part suffers. So in that beginning statement, he's saying, you have to understand that we are so interlinked that I need to be considering and looking out for the welfare of other people and not just simply doing what I think is in my best interest. Is this in the best interest of everyone? It's one of those things that I discovered as a father that as I began to produce children, that it began to change what were the priorities and obligations of my life. That it, it mattered if I went away before I had kids, I could go on a fishing trip for a week. And, you know, the only downside was when I came home, my wife had to hose me off. But the simple fact was that this, there was no real huge implication out of the fact that I'd been gone for a few days. But as the years went on, I realized that the more time I took for my own personal recreational interests, the less time that was left for my family. God didn't tell me, give up golf. No, my golf buddies told me to. But uh, there's a whole string of things that I used to like to do, from softball to tennis to golf, to, that I don't do. I stopped doing because it took so much away from the family that I just made a decision. Now, I'm not telling you that's what you're supposed to do. Maybe your schedule is different from my, than mine is and was. 
But the whole point is you have to step back and say, what is the most beneficial way for me to approach the hours of my day? How can I best spend them? And so it is, he says, we have to understand that whatever we do, it's never going to be just your own. And some people say, it was my life, I'll live it the way I want to. It is your life, and you can live it the way you want to, but you're going to find that there's going to be an effect. Because the more people that do that, the more chaos and confusion, the more hurt and wounding begins to take place. So that I think one of the hardest things for me to really, really understand on a deep level is that everything that you say about another person that's critical or derogatory or as Paul puts it here is diminishing them, looking down on them damages not only them but it damages you. It's, it's kind of like trying to wrestle with a skunk. The skunk stinks before he comes into your world and he stinks when he leaves but the difference is, is now you stink also. So you begin to realize that, that we're all interconnected. This is all interrelated. And that's why the one word that keeps on appearing over and over and over again in this chapter is judgment. Do not judge and look down upon your brother. That's the repeated theme, that that's the thing that concerns him more than anything else. Isn't that you have differences of opinions about certain things, it's that in the process you are elevating yourself above the other so that the other one becomes put down. Oh, they do that. I'll never forget getting on a, when my, my son Brian was a, about 15, 16 years of age and he was uh, into one of his uh, phases, and I, I never did quite understand which phase he was in. But I just remember it involved blue hair and, and, and a lot of bobby pins. And we were someplace, and I, my wife and I decided, you know, there's, there's some hills you want to die on, and that's not one of them. Uh, we believe by faith that it was a, was a phase and how lucky we were because it moved from bobby pins to tattoos. But... Um, I remember we, I, I had to do a hospital call, and I said, do you want to go with me? He said, sure. So we go, go to the hospital and get on the elevator, and we're going up, stops the floor, the door opens, a nurse steps in. She looks at him, she looks at me, and she goes, oh, you've got one of those at home too. <laughs> I just, <laughs> he looked at me, and I looked at her and him, and went to the next floor, door opened, and she got off. And when the door closed, <laughs> I just looked at him and said, Comes with a uniform, dude. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> you don't like it? Change your uniform. Right? <laughs> but, but it's interesting that how we can look at someone like that and we can draw this conclusion about them and be completely wrong. And I could go on and on with endless examples. As you know, I can, but I am trying to be self-disciplined here. <laughs> but first of all, we have to understand that we're all connected with each other and, and we can't just discount somebody and pretend like they have no relevance to our lives. As much as we'd like to just cut them off and say, well, that doesn't touch me, it doesn't work that way. But secondly, we're all accountable, not to one another as much as we are to God himself. In verses 8 through 11, he says, we belong to the Lord. And he goes on, we all will stand before God's judgment seat. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So in the final analysis, when I sit down and say, God, what should I do? The thing I have to always keep in my mind is that God expects me to choose what he wants me to do. And I'll never forget this one time when I was uh, 
we're home visiting friends and I had a, a lot of old friends who, who uh, weren't saved and one of them owned a bar. He had inherited it from his dad. His dad was an alcoholic who drunk, drank himself to death and then when his dad was gone, he took it over and, and I hadn't seen him. And So I tried to locate him, couldn't find him, but I knew where the bar was so I drove down and parked in front and I was sitting in the car praying, God, don't let anybody see me going in here. <laughs> And I got up and I walked into the bar. And you know how it's this seedy, dark, smoke-filled room, you know? And, uh, I, and I see my buddy, he's, he's waiting bar, and I walk up and I sit down at the bar. And he looks at me and he's already, <clears throat> and the sales are already halfway up. And he's, you know, and he looks at me and goes, Ken, what are you doing here? And I said, you know, I said, oh, great. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm a pastor. The guys on both sides of me got up and went away, left to set the table. <laughs> and so it's just, he, you well, what do you want to drink? I said, well, just have to give me a Coke. And so he sat there and we talked for a while and I got a chance to share Christ with him. And I remember as I walked out and got back in my car, I just thought, wow, that's the most bizarre thing. And I, I wouldn't tell anybody I had done that for years because I knew people, there were people saying, you went into a bar. You went into a bar. Because there's some people, now there's some of you who should never do that under any circumstances. I get that. I have a friend of mine who says, if, <laughs> if I touch one, one glass of alcohol, I'll wake up three, three weeks later in, in, uh, in Montana and not know how I got here. And so I, I get that. But you can't just simply, you know, it's like a pastor said, well, what would you do if you saw one of your pastors walking into a bar? And my response is, I'm not so concerned about him walking in. I just wonder what he's walking like when he comes out. <laughs> but you see, we automatically draw these conclusions about people. Well, you're doing this, you're doing that. And he's basically, the thing that's critical is to realize that you are accountable to God so that there's things we need to say, okay, God, this may, this may cause judgment, but I want to hear you. I want to know what you're saying to me. The thirdly, we have to stop judging. Talking about an absolute. When he says, as I said, more than anything else, he says in verse 1, stop passing judgment on disputable matters. In verse 4, he says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he st stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And again in verse 10, you then, who by, who, why do you judge your brother, or why do you look down on your brother? For we all stand before the judgment, God's judgment seat. In other words, in Galatians 6, 1, Paul says, if you see your brother overtaken in your fault, before you go to him, he says, consider yourself. Because he says, if you don't look at yourself, you're probably going to come in with pride and then go to your brother. Now, there's two ways in which we fail to fulfill that passage. The first one is we rarely consider ourselves. We rarely sit there and say, there but for the grace of God go I. That's what self-consideration is. It's looking at myself and saying, am, am I guilty of the same thing in some other way? And the second thing that we don't do is go to our brother. Usually what we do is we pass judgment and break fellowship, but we never go to our brother and saying, can we talk? So basically this whole issue of judging is, is really a tough one. I remember many years ago after Jimmy Swaggart had been busted the first time for sexual immorality and I was flipping the channels and there he was and I'm thinking to myself the audacity of that hypocrite to still continue to be on TV to do his program while he's been blah, 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 blah because, you know, I'm self-righteous. And... Um, but I thought, well, I wonder what he's going to have to say. And he started giving this Bible study on judgment. <laughs> I got so convicted... 
<laughs> Not because I could justify what had happened, but he says, you know, we condemn all sorts of sins, but we give full pass to judging one another. We give ourselves complete permission to pass judgment on other people. And I thought, you know, I'm guilty. I'm sorry. And I, I sent him a love gift. No, I, <clears throat> I repented. But fourthly, he said also, stop doing those things that cause others to stumble. In verses 20 and 21, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for the man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. And again, he adds in verse 15, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Which brings me really to my last point. What exactly does he mean by acting in love? What does that look like in terms of these issues? Well, first of all, I would just simply, using Paul's words, be convinced in your own mind. He says, each of one of you should be fully convinced in his own mind. He adds, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. And then further on, he says, blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So when there are disputable matters, you really need to sit down and seek the face of God and say, Lord, what is your will? What is your heart for me? How do you want me to deal with this? Is this something that is not, is just simply a disputable matter or is this something that I can't do. In fact, in some ways, there are things that other people may be able to do that you can never do. And there's things that you may be able to do that they can never do. But the question is, am I responding to this in faith before God, honestly, transparently, openly? Or is this something that in the back of my mind, I feel like I'm doing something wrong and therefore I can't? Now, my pastor used to talk about growing up how that he was not allowed to go to the movie theaters because he was taught that that's where the devil went for entertainment. And he says, I remember sneaking in and sitting in the theater and living in terror. I couldn't even enjoy the movie because the whole time I was thinking, if Jesus comes back while I'm watching uh, you know, Tom Mix in this cowboy movie, I'm going to go straight to hell. <laughs> you know, there again, I sit back and go, well, first of all, uh, that's silly from my perspective, in this age in which we live, but what's really issue is that you are still doing something that you felt was not right with God. Where you need to sit down and say, is this something that's okay with God in my life? And am I being honest with God? Is this allowable? Is this in, in, in God's will for my life? But secondly, he says we need to be considerate that I don't think simply about what's okay for me but is this something that can have a negative impact upon others? When he says, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in your brother's way. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. And he adds, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Then a considered attitude is, let me do that thing that's going to build up other people, not something that's going to create difficulties or challenges or, or harshness for other people. And then finally is the issue of confidentiality. Uh, be convinced, be considerate, 
and be confidential when he says in verse 22, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Keep between yourself and God. So that many times people will say, well, I have a liberty in a particular area of my life, and they advertise their liberty, and they share it with everybody they can because they want to prove that they have the liberty. And he simply says, you know, if it's your liberty and yet it's going to be offensive to somebody else, keep that to yourself. You're not a billboard for being able to do whatever you want to do. But be considered about how that's going to be perceived and how that's going to affect other people. And as a consequence, he says, we'll be able to move forward in a non-confrontational way. Because when you talk to the non-Christian, what does he or she really say about the church and what they find wrong with it? Don't they see us oftentimes biting and devouring and fighting and, and accusing and criticizing and looking down upon one another because we don't do what we think we should do? I find it interesting to me because even within the own, my own uh, religious polity, if I can use that term, that um, there's a tendency many times to look at somebody who's doing something different or even a Calvary pastor is doing something different saying, well, he's not acting very Calvary-like. And it, it's kind of interesting. Often, so what exactly does that look like? It's like a friend of mine said, what do you mean when you say something is of the world? Or we're no longer part of the world. Are we on Mars? I mean, what does that mean? We can use a language that's not very distinct and very defined and can be more confusing than helpful. But you see, the problem is, is that Calvary is a mo movement in the history of the church with a certain emphasis, but there were a lot of things that came before and there are a lot of things that will come after if the Lord tarries. And we are not the end of the revelation of God or the movement of God. We are just one of many great movements of God throughout human history. And when we begin to see ourselves as being an elite group, an exclusive group, that we do things a certain way, and we say things like, well, you know, they're teaching topically, they're not teaching uh, biblically, and so forth and so on, I think we, we fall into error. Because essentially what a other ministry does or the way they function is between them and God. That's where their accountability comes. And what happens is we become, eventually become defined by what we're against, not what we're for. So that when people argue about, there are people who are saying, well, if you're not reading the King James Bible, you're not reading the real Bible. And I'm surprised. I still get emails and letters from people telling me that I'm in sin because I am not teaching out of the King James I, didn't, I thought all those people had, had gone extinct with the dinosaurs, but they're still there. And I, and I, and I look at that, I, I don't even try to have the conversation anymore because I said, you're going to divide over that? Really? Because what it tells me, first of all, is they know absolutely nothing about textual criticism or the biblical text. They know absolutely nothing. But somebody has fed them a, a, a pile of um, unprocessed uh, horse manure and, um, and they just don't know any better. But the simple fact is that we can begin to become judges of other people and look down on other people because they don't do it the way that we do it. They don't sing the songs the way we sing the songs. They don't, they don't sing the selection of songs that we sing. And on and on it goes. And those things become minors that we're majoring on. Well, my, my cousin, who is uh, my dear cousin, wonderful Christian man, 
um, raised all his life in the Seventh-day Adventist church, administrator, uh, served in various capacities within their denomination for many years. And one day he and I were having a conversation and he said to me, he said, I realize that there's absolutely no difference between you and me. He says, the reason why I'm in the Adventist church is because it's what I grew up with, it's what I'm familiar with and what I know. But I know this, that we are no better than you are. And you're no better than us. And I said, you're absolutely right. Other than the fact that you guys won't eat pork and worship on the wrong day, <laughs> you're so close to the truth of God. <laughs> but you know, I'm not judging, I'm just saying, until you try bacon, you will never know what you're missing. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> but I think in so many ways he is a more godly man than I am. He just doesn't know the joy of pork. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to, to be humble and honest about these things in our own life, that it is so easy for us to try to find our identity in being better than somebody else or being more holy or more spiritual when in fact, Lord, that we are all sinners who are saved by grace, who are kept by grace. And that, Lord, when we pass judgment on one another, when we look down upon one another, what we're really doing is really kind of bullying your children we're acting in an unkind way to those whom you love desperately with all of your heart. Teach us, Lord, to love people, not because they're right, not because they're wrong, but just because they are. You love them, you died for them, Lord. That, and until we can begin to share the gospel in a way that is, is filled with your grace and your love, many people will never be able to hear what we're saying. There will always be differences of opinions, different ideas. We will always have debates. We will always have discussions. We will always have differences of opinions. But in the end, Lord, we all stand and fall before you and have to give account of our journey here on earth, Lord. And I just pray that we would do it with humility and honesty we would be lovers of your grace not only for ourselves but we would be lovers of grace for others because we need it desperately we live in an ungracious world we live in a world that sometimes is so ungracious it's cruel and harsh God help us to be ministers of your grace we pray in Jesus name Amen as we continue on in the time of worship, I always just really encourage you to take the opportunity to stay in your seat for a few moments longer and reflect. Some of you have small kids. Don't panic. They're having more fun than you can even, than you are. And, uh, <clears throat> and I hear it all the time, you know, that the parents show up and the kids say, I don't want to leave. You know, so let them enjoy themselves for a little while and just take a moment to reflect upon the Lord, just to ask God to speak to you. I, I'm of the conviction that with everything that I said, there has to be something that resonated with you. And if not, you probably should find another church. But the point is, there, there should have been something. And sometimes we don't really get the benefit of that resonance because we don't allow it to really go deep inside of us. It doesn't get a chance to percolate down to the important centers of our life. And this is just an opportunity to do that.
So sing if you want. Don't sing if you don't want to. Pray. Pray with somebody else. Come up here and we'll pray with you. But I would just say, before you come and take of the elements, take a moment just to reflect upon how what I've shared today might relate to your walk with Jesus and how you interact with the rest of the world around you. And I think you'll be glad you did.